This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. You're, you said sandy soil. Well, one of the things I did is, is I went out there and uh, I found a sturdy bush. And standing next to this sturdy bush, I conducted my own little perk test. I brought some fluid with me. I put it on the ground. I want to see how quickly this fluid. And it, I made a puddle. And uh, and it's like, huh? It's it's kind of like not. It's not slipping this this liquid that I put on your uh, pasture out there. It yeah. it it held on to the surface there for uh, for quite a while. I I waited to see if it would soak in and. And so I've, I looked at the handful of soil that you showed me earlier and saying, see, it's sand. Well, it's, not, it's not quite sand. We have a sandy loam. It's sandy actually loam. about the almost the ideal if you're looking for farming. Yeah. It's almost the ideal because it yeah. drains well. It has fertility. It's just the fact of it does drain well. And we got that from, if we want, we can walk back over here and look at the seep, which is you turn the irrigation on and water starts coming out to the river. But, yeah, it does hold on to it. We have that evidented by the puddle we have next to the leaking uh, sprinkler. Yeah. Yeah. It builds up a good portion of water, and it yeah. stays there for a little while. Yeah. But it, it does drain away still relatively fast. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, I want you to do a mason jar test. Do you know what that means? Yeah, fill it with soil, fill it with water, shake it up, and let it the sediments separate out into their individual layers so you can see exactly what the composition of the soil is. Exactly. I want you to do that. <laughs> and so then we'll know, because I think... That what you're going to find is is that you have very little clay, because that was part of what you were telling me. Like I don't have any clay. Yeah. I don't think I'm gonna be able to seal this. And so I'm I'm thinking, buddy, I I think you might have some clay, and so not much, but you just need a little bit. Well, and that's why I was saying is that what we the biggest plan is to get pigs in and glay the pond using the pigs, so that way we can. It doesn't matter whether we have the clay or not. And the plan is is that. That works really great because I don't know about you. I like bacon, and my my son loves sausage, so I don't think we're gonna have any problems reusing those pigs. Yeah, uh, um, I think bacon, Stacy, it, it'll just kill me right now because uh, of uh, gallstone stuff. But um, uh, I hear you, and I don't think pigs pigs don't glay upon, but what they do is that they they wallow, and and that's gonna be the shape of their hooves combined with them constantly digging it up and things of that nature, and that. Tends to uh, uh, seal upon this action that they do seals the pond. Uh, glay technique is generally going to be we're going to um, have a high nitrogen content, uh, usually in layers, and we're going to keep it wet and anaerobic, and then it it turns to kind of a, a mat, uh, you know. But anyway, so we're not going to it won't be a glay process, but it'll be it will be a sealing process with hogs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of I'm kind of curious like how much how much clay you have and I think you might have some as my my perk test said I think 
I think Brian has some clay here. But and of course there's the mud puddle he pointed out. Yep. And uh, so there are indicators of like things that are slowing down the flow. And um, and I so I think if it's close enough, then running the pigs in there will seal the deal. <laughs> seal the deal. Okay. Uh, next thing is is oh when we're going out to look at your teeny tiny pasture, then then you said oh like when I was shopping for this property, I knew this was the right property because I saw lots of weeds. What's that mean? It means that there wasn't any herbicide sprayed everywhere. It's what made me really look at it and go, okay, I could really buy this. There's waist-high weeds everywhere, which meant that we had not only that, but we had a huge variety of plants in our pasture. Yes, yes. And you have uh, lots of nitrogen fixers. You have an irrigation system out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw um, a Black Medic. I saw Clover. Uh, you had you had patches of mullein that were not getting irrigated. Yeah. And, and you went ahead and uh, uh, mowed around the mullein. Like, go mullein, go! Yep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I bet you there's like, yeah, 40 different species of this, that, and the other out there. Oh, yeah, easily. Yeah. yeah. It's a re- it's actually a really nice pasture if you go and look at it because just because of that quantity and then it's bounce back we mowed and it was literally less than a week with just with a little bit of water it's bouncing back six inches or more and we had uh, over a two-week period we had almost 14 inches of growth in a two-week period just with minor irrigation because the irrigation only gets turned on for a portion of each week because we just we're not we're not here all the time we're not messing with the irrigation all the time so what you're seeing is is just a little bit of water with the plants that are there and we're just getting this huge explosive amount of growth all right you're gonna bring some animals in what are you bringing in we're getting four dexter cows okay um i think i think you're going to have to import feed for the cattle yeah we already kind of planned on it it mostly we were planning to want to wait for a year but we basically ran into a guy that's just an hour away who was willing to deliver the cows. He wanted to downsize his herd, so we were able to basically get the exact breed of cow we wanted because we wanted a smaller cow. We didn't want a larger one, and we're also planning on transporting them up to our pastures that we have during the summer. We're mostly going to look at keeping them here during the winter, so the plan is to try and basically get that pasture set so that we can feed them hopefully for about at least half of the winter on the pasture but for this year yeah, we're gonna have to import some hay just to get them fed through this year so now uh one of the things you showed me was something that was kind of barn like and there was a sad thing in that barn and i'm glad to hear you say certain words and that makes me think that the dexter cattle will probably never see the inside of that barn uh, no, Dexter cattle for sure. Uh, the ones that we're getting were actually raised all grass-fed, no herbicides, no pesticides used in congruence with them, and he doesn't have any barns or shelters for them. So these cows are actually surviving out there all winter long with no significant shelter. Our our plans are basically, one of the things is we have the walnut trees all the way around the edge of that pasture. So we're also going to use those to help shade and give protection to them, and then we're probably going to set up a several several sets of snow fences so to give them wind breaks mm. for this year. I'm hoping, like you said, next year we're hoping to have 
some more stuff structure in that'll do take the place of those snow fences that'll give them some wind break and if, hopefully if we have the materials we can do a berm but uh we just need to get something in there that's going to give that break and that's where we're looking at planting uh, trees and some brush to help give those kinds of breaks to the cattle in that pasture what was the sad thing that we saw in that micro barn Oh yes, our our lovely barn that's uh, dirty is not not an understatement. So we have roughly what was that? Maybe uh, 10, 12 inches of petrified and compacted manure. So the the floor level in the barn is I mean it's a dirt floor, but it's like yeah 10 or 12 inches higher than the floor. And so then you're kind of thinking like oh that's that's actually not dirt. Yeah. And it's like, it's obvious that what happened when you're looking at it. It's like, <laughs> I know how that ground level got that high in there. So if you think about it, if it's that high and it's currently petrified, it must have been at least six inches higher than that at some point. Yeah. It's, uh, like I said, I don't know which, which was sadder, the fact that we have that much petrified manure in there or how much work it's going to take to get it out. But in the end, either way, we got a whole bunch of fertilizer. Yeah. Yeah. I bet those Mullins would love to get some of that. Because we were looking at some of that where the Mullins were, and it was kind of like that's, you know, the, the Mullin is the unirrigated area, and that's growing on dirt. That's that's some dirt-like dirt. And the Mullins yeah. there trying to repair it. And it's like, how about giving the Mullins a little love? And so just pack that on out there for them. Uh, let's see. I was out there and I pointed out the, a clover, and on the clover there was a honeybee. Yeah, so we're out here. We were lucky enough when we were looking through the town. The large majority of the orchards out here are actually organic. We do still have some that are that are traditional that use the herbicides and pesticides, but all of the orchards bring in honeybee hives and you'll see them stacked out at the ends during during the season we also tend to get a lot of wild hives that'll go into all the different little verges that we have around here and it's one of the things with the river a lot of the river bank is privately owned and is not actually used for anything it's just left to go wild so we do have quite extensive runs of relatively wild area up to about 20 feet from the river bank and my guess is is some of those hives over the years have split off and we do have a large quantity of honeybees floating around at any time of the year speaking of the river let's let's here we are we're looking at the river and you've kind of got like your you've got a teeny tiny backyard of sorts and then it, it sloughs off down to like it looks like your secondary backyard a little like halfway between here and the river and uh, so it's a little flat spot there now i understand it's like uh it's it's a it's got a height i don't know it looks like that area is probably 12 feet lower than the um the little bit of backyard that's here maybe even 14 feet lower so we're but you're heading down towards the river and um and there's a flat spot now i believe you said something about how it gets wet yeah so that's the so not necessarily every year but most years it'll come really close or get up into that basically that little bench right above so that's basically the upper standard flood zone so we get a lot of moisture in that area we have two corkscrew willows we have uh, a bunch of other water loving plants that are all along that edge so that it does give us some different uh, different habitat down here along the river okay 
so the important thing is, and the, the thing I want to go to now, because a lot of times people will invite me to their property and they'll ask for advice. And my advice is oftentimes sell it. And and the number one reason why I'll say that is is like if they're in if they're in a floodplain that gets flooded every year, so basically that teeny tiny patch, and it's like. I don't know. I, I I don't want to say that you know it's even an eighth of an acre. It's just a little tiny, skinny. I don't know. It looks like it's ten, probably ten about, foot wide. Yeah, ten foot wide, little little sunken yard down there. But that spot does get flooded every year. Yeah, yeah. And so as we're wandering, I mean, I'm kind of thinking like, okay. You need to put in your hugel culture and your berms, and you need to, you know, and I'm thinking of all these, there's the ponds and the water, and there's, so I've got all these thoughts about all these different things, and, and zone one, zone two, and I'm kind of thinking, like, for this area, because it floods, and then, of course, I'm going to guess every year you end up with some of your soil that's down there gets ripped away by the floods, and some of it gets added so as the as the flooding begins, it's probably taking some away, and as the flooding ends, it's leaving off brand new soil from elsewhere. Sound about right? Yeah, especially on the the bank that faces the river, we actually have to go dig out a, a barbecue that was left after the big flood the other year. <laughs> we have we have a an impacted. Uh, barbecue and then i was looking and i i gotta go down and dig it out i think we have a spring tooth harrow that's mostly buried <laughs> down on the side over here and i'm going hey look at that somebody just decided to donate me a, a tractor implement by letting it get flooded down the river <laughs> oh man all right so it's a treasure hunt down there uh showing uh how the uh the 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 dirt comes and goes and it pulses through. But of course, you got a lot of trees down there kind of holding it all together as well. And, um, and so I'm kind of thinking like, uh, uh, what a beautiful thing. I mean, I want to see more light come in. Um, but at the same time, I'm thinking like, all right. Clearly, this is going to be fairly moist. Uh, anything growing down there doesn't have to go very deep in order to be able to find water. Uh, what a great place to grow a lot of things, but. Personally, I would choose to not grow edibles there. Mostly because I'm, I mean, like, I think a conventional grower would be like, oh, yeah, grow edibles down there. It'll be great. Um, and I think even organic growers would be like that. But I'm, I'm an odd duck and I'm kind of thinking like, I, I wish to have this property and I want to grow stuff on here that it is of such a high quality. It effectively cures cancer and things of that nature. And so I wish to not grow food down there. And so, uh, Let's pretend for a moment that uh, that that I am the ruler of your universe. <laughs> but now now that I've said you can't grow food down there, what do you want to plant? Well, we were talking about do, propagating the willows, and we could do the willows and the black locusts, which would then give us fuel sources and materials to make things from. The the one and only thing, because I was looking at it, going, I don't really want to grow much down there. I was like, the only thing that would be really cool would be able to grow my own rice. But I understand the pollutants coming down the river. It was just like, hey, I don't have to do any work and i could grow some rice but i agree with you keeping away from all the pollutants is the best way to go but making a fuel source by putting the coppicing trees down there and using the 
willows to support the bank so that it doesn't flood away every single year and also reduce and uh, what's one of the reasons I think that we have this big berm that's down here is because we have these willows and I'm not sure what the the other brush that's over here is the really interesting part though is we were down fishing the other day and I swear we have a river otter living down over here too oh nice now I'm looking at that area and I'm kind of thinking like that's the area where I want to put um, my lawn furniture and I want to have lawn and I want to I want to have that be like a, a beautiful recreational area and uh, also you know all kinds of little facilitations to make it easier to get down to the river and uh, enjoy the view of the river things like that and of course there's a bunch of sand right there that must have gotten dropped off I imagine uh, uh, I mean you told me that your children love that sand down there I was thinking like any neighborhood cats would especially love that sand yeah they, they could uh, so far the cats haven't gone down there too much it's mostly the children have occupied it as the largest sandbox they've ever seen yeah, and I imagine the cats are thinking the same thing. Wow, that's the largest sandbox I've ever seen. Actually, no, the cats don't go down there almost <laughs> oh, ever. We okay. have we have two cats, and they don't go down there. They usually tend to go out front or, you know, wow. the place you the love. Mice. The spruce trees is the where they tree. tend to go. That's odd. That's a, <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, kids will be digging in there like, look, I found some almond roca. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's cool. Not yet. Not yet. The cats don't venture down that way. Okay. The dogs do a little bit, but not too much. Soil tests. I imagine that's on the to-do list. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd be curious. I mean, you've got your, your, you've got a lot of irrigation. You're close to the river. I mean, there's some spots that don't have irrigation. I imagine the spots that don't have irrigation are going to have a really high pH, and then the spots that do have irrigation are going to have a much lower pH. Um, I'm kind of curious, like, what nutrients you have plenty of and what nutrients you might have in excess. I mean, you were talking earlier about iron and magnesium, and it's like yeah. if you've got toxic levels of iron and magnesium, suddenly that whole thing we're talking about about the well is a dumb idea. Yeah, and I'm not sure. We, we have to get the well tested to know exactly what's in it, but we do know it's extremely high in iron just because we were pulling out a toilet and literally the entire inside's coated with iron deposits. So, you know, we, we do have a lot of that. And then uh, just seeing what else is out there. From, from the plant growth, we got to have something going on right. But then on top of it, it's been how long has it been neglected? Because we do know the previous owner was not the most diligent because we have some patches that I've started... Uh, raking back and it literally looks like he was feeding the cows that he had about 10 years ago all in one place and we literally had petrified about six to eight inches worth of hay on the ground and you can definitely see where the hay is and where the ground's at and it's a delineated line okay um <clears throat> last item on my list and that is that, of course, you know, my philosophy, I mean, we're going to, like, I, I've, I'm already pretending that those spruce trees are gone. They're down. <laughs> They're on the ground. And so um, uh, I want to do hugel culture off contour, perpendicular to contour. I, I kind of feel like you've got dual issues to deal with here. One is, is that you want to extend your growing season by trying to eliminate frost pockets. And another thing that you want to do is, like, when it gets to be summertime, 
it gets to be really hot here. This is the desert. I mean, this is there's no there's no getting around it. You're in the middle of the desert. Yeah. This is this is quite the desert. It's yeah, super we desert. Yeah, I'm and not sure what the temperature was. Tracy, what was the high temperature that we had this summer? 103. 103 was the high temperature. That's not too bad. No, and That's... it stays a little bit cooler because of our walnut trees. We tend to stay about 10 degrees cooler, but you go all the way out to the road out front, and it definitely gets up to 95, 100 degrees on a regular yeah. basis. I wonder what the high temperature for um, this area is for, the, like, you know, the last 10 years. I'm What's that? 105. 105, really? I was going to guess about 115. Yeah, no, it never never gets quite that hot here. It usually out in the basin, like out towards uh, might be because of the Moses river. Lake and some of those areas out in the basin. Yeah, it can it'll get about five degrees hotter, so it might get to like 108. But even on a regular basis, it doesn't get super hot, even even out in the basin. They said their record was 104 last year. Uh, okay, wow. Wow, 104 was the record uh, last year. Uh, I uh, used to work the wheat harvest between Pendleton and Walla Walla. Mm-hmm. And I remember working uh, one day, and it was 114. And this is when I was probably 18. And so a while back, <laughs> back in the day... So I'm kind of thinking like, um, and that was that's country there where where it's it's cooler than this desert. But it, and so I'm just kind of thinking like I was expecting something much hotter. But maybe what we're talking about here is your microclimate. Well, the microclimate, and then you got to look too because you're basically that's uh, the Palouse running down into the Oregon. Yeah. Is here we got all these rocks, and you don't think about it, but look at the rocks we got really steep hillsides we got hillsides going up on each side i'm wondering if some of that just make makes it to where the heat can't just simmer and bake everything because you got so much texture because i mean you look and right back over here you know you got almost mountains that shoot straight up we got quite a bit of elevation gain over here i know our uh, property that's up north starts at about four thousand feet and right here we're at we're at about uh eight it's eight fifteen or eight twenty is what we are here. So just from here up to there, an hour and a half away, you're climbing literally over three thousand vertical feet. Okay. So we have a lot lot of texture to the land here. Yeah. Okay. Well where I'm at we call it the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. And um and I think it was our second summer there in June we hit hundred and seven one day. And so we've we've already had some pretty hot days, but I think we're also at a lower elevation than you are. Um, but setting all of that aside, the thing I was going for was to say, like, you might have some heat to fight in the area. If nothing else, um, the air that comes through here is going to be dry just because the surrounding country... It's desert. Is so deserty. It's like that whole thing of like, okay, there's some sagebrush, and sometimes it not even sagebrush will grow. And uh, when you look for trees, it's like you've got to look a long ways to see some trees. Like, for as we're driving up here, uh, any given spot, it's like, okay, if you look around, you can all the trees. Maybe as far as the eye can see, you can pick out 20 trees that are growing where it's you know untouched land. And probably 17 of those are next to the river. 
yeah yeah there's there's not a lot of tree cover here once you get higher up it's really strange you go up in elevation and you seem to get more but as you come down it all turns into basically nothing but grassland as you go up you're going to be getting into uh, mountains that are going to be harvesting the passing clouds and so that's probably what it is um all right well the thing I wanted to be to, to suggest, the thing I wanted to you know design, was of course the the thing that I think is the the you know the first tool in my toolbox is hugo culture, mm-hmm. and I want to have it be I, I want it to be able to let any cold air pass by. So I want to make sure I don't make any frost pockets. Yeah. So anywhere where there's cold air coming down, I want to give it a nice clear path out. So um, that means not building the hugo culture on contour. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, because I was thinking like, okay, you're going to have some dry, dry, dryness, and it would be nice to have at least one spot somewhere that's a little cooler. I was thinking you might have one spot that you make into a swale, and uh, or maybe uh, a sepulchral crater garden. Um, uh, something like that. Something where cold air can accumulate and have a cooler spot. So get sun, but it's cooler. And you can grow some of your cooler crops in the summertime. But the rest of it, I would want to be like, I want to extend the growing season. And to do that, I want to make sure that I'm grow- I'm, I'm creating culture beds that are contrary, that are perpendicular to contour. And, of course, giving them a little wiggly-jiggly so that way um, uh, any kind of wind ends up having to go over the culture beds. And so you're so going to have this... Funneling down through them. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, um, but I think most of that is going to be um, between the house and the road. And uh, and 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 your zone one, of course, which is Spruce Tree Central. Yep. Yeah. So um, I would want to. Um, uh, yeah, those spruce trees are right in my zone one. They gotta. They gotta <laughs> go. Um, but there's a lot of. You've got a lot of trees to keep. I think. Mm-hmm. I think that considering, I think I would keep all of the walnut trees. I just might trim them up a little bit to let a little bit more light down to the ground where my growies are. I like that they're providing uh, shade, but I'd like to see them, like as the sun moves across the sky, I'd like to see the shade that they're providing move across the ground. And so then that way they're not a they're not a 100% shade, but a part day shade. And then of course, like if you look at the black locust, um, it lets a lot of light through already. Um, and I would, I mean, yeah, and and I like I like the idea. It's like with this black locust we're looking at right now, you can see it's got a nice straight leader. I would want to encourage that to continue with that straight leader, but much like what I was just suggesting with the walnuts, I want to trim up some of those lower branches. Yeah. Because um, that's that's where I want more light to get to my growies, my food crops. Yeah, and that's what we already started. You wouldn't know it to go look in the field, but one of those brush piles. Yeah. 
was all the walnut trees we actually had when we bought the house. The walnut trees actually touched the ground. <laughs> all the limbs. Even even on the front drive, uh-huh. we've cut a bunch of those all the way up. Those are brush piles out in the center. Oh, man. So literally, we have walnut tree limbs that literally bent all the way down and touched the ground. They were so long. And I was like, okay, so that's why we went and bought a pole saw. Because one of the first <laughs> things that we're doing is we've been trimming everything up, trying to get as the tree limbs up as high as possible, partly so we can drive the tractor underneath, uh-huh. but also so that you can even just walk. Because in a lot of places, yeah. we couldn't walk because the tree limbs touched the ground. And it was a solid wall all the way around. So we've done quite a bit of cleaning up there. We're, we're looking at, uh, I know over here that the tree that we can't figure out what the heck it is has got a juniper next to it. But we're probably looking at most of the pine trees over there, the juniper, a lot of that stuff's all going to come out just so we can open it up, if nothing else, just because we have so much heavy canopy with these walnuts. Uh-huh. I want to get as much open area as possible in a lot of uh, in a lot of spaces because we have deep shade. We have lots of shade. We need to try and decrease the shade and increase the dappled intermediate shade that we don't have. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. I, I agree. I agree. Great minds and think alike and all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. There you go. There's there's my quickie analysis after being here for like 30 minutes uh, on on your property. Um, now uh, we go into the next the next big phase, and that is that you have watched you have listened to over 400 of my podcasts. Do you have any questions for me? Not particularly because most of your stuff just makes sense. <laughs> of course it does. <laughs> That's just rational thought. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, like I said, I've, I've listened to most of them. I started quite a while ago listening to them. And, uh, you know, it's just it's hard to find really good information that doesn't just strike me as half of it doesn't make sense straight off. And a lot of these people, you know, it's like they start talking and you get so far into it, all of a sudden it's like, okay, I already know that that's not going to work and this isn't going to work and you can't do the same thing everywhere. You have to adapt. And one of the things about it has always been is that you always go out and try the stuff first. You don't just say, this will work everywhere. It's like, oh, no, we found out. It definitely doesn't work here. It definitely doesn't work there. But it works awesome over here. And, you know, the the ability to find somebody that doesn't just say, this is the only thing, this is my recipe, it works perfect, buy it, and you will work, you will have everything work perfectly for you. I, I kind of feel like <clears throat> every once in a while uh, you'll get some information from some source and then they'll they'll say 10 things but one thing you and and they'll do that where it's like this works everywhere this works everywhere this works everywhere <clears throat> and and if it's like let's say there's two things that you agree with but there's one thing that it's like no that's not going to work suddenly the other seven things are all suspect yeah. it's like i i wish i could believe what you're saying buddy but you said at least one thing that i know for a fact is not true so now I'm kind of suspicious of all the rest of it. I don't know which ones is the things I can believe and which ones are the things I can't believe. And so now everything you're saying, I, I like I can't learn here. 
because it's like you're you're throwing things out which may or may not work, and I kept qualifying them that way, as opposed to going someplace where it's like everything does work. And of course, you know, I'm thinking everything I say is fully qualified. So, you know, um, yeah. But anyway, all right, all right, all right. But it's it's just like the permaculture. Like I've been looking at PDCs and things. Like you talk about, they do the the song and dance, and they have all the hippie-ish stuff in it. And it's like, yeah, that's all great and good, but I really want to focus more on how things work. And oftentimes we we talk about the togetherness of everything. And personally, me, I don't like people. <laughs> I'm not a people person. For some reason, you know, I was a manager for a lot of years. I used to manage hundreds of people. And people would sit there and go, why do you do this job? I go, because I get paid for it. And I know how to do it. Well, then you must be a really good people person. I go, I don't like people. When I go on vacation, I run away to the most remote place I can find where there is no people. And I stay there until I'm forced to come back to people. You know, from the perspective of somebody who's starting a job for the first time and they think that their manager is an asshole, um, I got... I mean, there's two two big thoughts that I have. One is is that if your manager, because a lot of times they're going to be starting off in like flipping burgers somewhere or something like that. So if your manager was really great at being a manager, they would have been promoted and they would have gotten a job paying ten times more somewhere else. So you got a manager that's like not going to be the best, and yet still your manager. The other thing is is that it's kind of like even a good manager, uh, you know, a, a, a person that's new to the workforce is going to look to that good manager and say what an asshole and what they're what i think what they mean to say is <clears throat> i told my manager what to do and and my manager would not do it i tried to manage my manager and my manager would not obey therefore my manager is an asshole and so it's kind of like so i kind of feel like part of it is 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 in order to get things to be to effectively work out it's like somebody's got to be the asshole. And that's a big part of it. So when you don't care about people, I think you actually make out to be a better manager. I'm going, we've got to get this much stuff yep. done in this much time, or else we all get fired, which includes me! <laughs> well, the thing was, I was referred to more than a few times as an asshole. But like one of the guys said, he was sitting there, and I literally took him to the ER and made him get an x-ray. Mm -hmm. And he goes, you're an asshole. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I said, I don't care. I go, yeah. you need to do it. This is what needs to happen. And you know what? Two days later, he had a cast on. He came back to work. I put him on a on a light-duty shift. And he goes, you know, you're you're an asshole, but he goes, sometimes I needed an asshole because I wasn't going to listen to you. And he goes, I really should have gone. And he goes, I was going to be too pig-headed. But he goes, you were the asshole that took care of me. And I go, sometimes yeah. that's just what you got to do to get the job done. So I I kind of feel like it's it's like uh, being being an asshole is almost essential. Um, and it's and it's and really at, being an asshole is relative and subjective. And it's like so from from the perspective of so-called asshole, it's like I am behaving rationally and doing the decent and right thing. You just want to have like a hundred dollars per hour while sitting on your ass all day, and I'm interfering with that. And so therefore, I'm an asshole from your perspective, relative to that hammock you're sitting in. Yeah, I am an asshole. But uh, if you want to get paid, you gotta actually do the work for which you are paid so anyway all right 
this this is a topic that could take six or seven hours. Um, but but I think I think most people know uh, these these kinds of things about asshole to being uh, relative and subjective. I wrote an essay about uh, don't be a dick, be a dick, and and I kind of feel like. Um, uh, how can you change the world? How can you make things better unless by somebody's standards you're being a dick? And, of course, you know, it, it all actually started from Will Wheaton's got a thing out about his whole mantra. I've seen, like, they've got massive memes and posters and all kinds of things. And it's kind of like um, what, it, what it's saying is, some, is don't be a dick. That's his catchphrase. Don't be a dick. <laughs> and I kind of feel like, all right, and, and when... when, when uh, when I tell you what to do, I need you to not be a dick, which means you're going to obey me universally, always. Uh, and then, of course, uh, for me to get my way, I'm going to appear to be a dick to you. And it's like, so that's, I, I think, I, I don't see another way around it. I mean, if you're going to choose a path where you do nothing because you're worried somebody's going to call you a dick or an asshole or something like that, I think, I think you're only, the only thing you could do is nothing. And and you can only be sweet and polite to people, which, by the way, being polite is a form of lying. Yeah, for the most part, being being sweet and polite doesn't tend to work. Like I said, I was in a oftentimes a very very high stress situation, and the biggest problem was is that people are like, well, I don't feel I don't feel at this point. You know what matters? We got to get it done. I don't care what you feel. We get yeah. it done, or I find somebody else that'll help me get it done, and that's just it. And a lot of times, I would literally have 15 or 20 people, and they say, well, this has got to get it done. I only want five of them, because the fewer people I had that wouldn't argue with me, yeah. that wouldn't talk back, that would just do it and get it done, and the thing was, is more often than not, those people were perfectly happy with getting direction and going, but you can't be nice. It's just like when we ran rentals. If I had been nice... I would have been spending lots of money. The biggest thing about not being nice was, hey, guess what? I've looked at your paperwork. No. Next. No. Next. No. You can't put emotion into it. If you put emotion into it, you're going to be sitting there going, well, I can't tell them not to do this, and I can't tell them not to do that. And then all of a sudden, they're burning your house down. I want to counter you. I, you're saying you can't put emotion into it. You're putting emotion into this property. True. And I put emotion into people, but the decision of whether I should do this or not, you don't put emotion to. You use emotion afterwards to basically filter your decision. Okay, so I'm not going to go down and be an absolute prick and kick the door in and scream at them. <laughs> I'm going to go down and say, hey, you know what? This isn't working out. You need to leave. And then when they've screamed, yelled at you, and you decide, okay, I guess that's not going to work, then you go to the less polite methods. You always start off with polite, and you work through the spectrum to complete assholery. So I, I, I kind of feel like a big part of this podcast is for me to share my, um, I guess, for, for lack of a better word at the moment, I'm going to say dickishness or assholiness, which, which I think is a wonderful word. It's his assholiness. Now, now, as the Duke, people are supposed to address me as your grace, but perhaps what they'll hear is that it's his assholiness. Uh, but anyway, the thing is, is that it's relative and subjective. So I kind of feel like by being honest, and so many people put on a facade, 
And it's like, okay, what you're going to do is you're going to filter people based on your facade. And if it's a polite facade, you're going to attract more people. But of course, I also think that if you please everybody, you're of interest to nobody. Yeah. And so it's like, you, you, by being perfectly polite at all times, I kind of think it's extremely difficult to have substance. Um, so, so that's it. I think that, uh, an important thing to do is, and I, and I feel like you and I are going to be a lot alike in this respect. I'm going to project this assholiness in my podcast. You're going to listen to more than five minutes of one podcast. And by doing so, you're like, no, this guy's all right. This, this guy in his position, and I can see, and I'm sure you can understand how a majority of the population is going to listen to this and, and come to the conclusion, I am a horrible, monstrous dick, and that they want nothing to do with me. However, there's going to be this tiny sliver that's going to be like, nope, it all sounds reasonable to me. You exactly, know. and those are the people you want to talk to. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing is is that I think that a lot of people that are going to be, let's say, 24 years old and might listen to five minutes of this and go, oh, man, that was so horrible. What a dick. What an asshole. Ten years later, they're going to catch something again, and they're going to come, from, come at it and say, why did I think that ten years ago? This guy is right on. This guy is spot on. And I think it's going to be an element of maturity. They're going to have gotten burned in enough situations that they're going to think, no, 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 this, this makes sense now. This is, before I don't know what I was thinking. I, you know, but now it makes total sense. So I, I do feel like the stuff, the flavor of permaculture we talk about here is going to be like, third generation permaculture like the the people that get started they want to grow a garden and call it permaculture and then and then there's going to be people that are going to advocate for a certain brand of permaculture and it's going to be a while until they realize that a lot of the things that they thought were really cool for the first five years they've kind of gotten burned down a lot of things and now they're looking for something of more substance they're looking I think they're going to be far more comfortable with this but it's a minority it's going to be like for, I don't know, 5%, 4% of people that are interested in permaculture. But I also think that it's going to be your more mature permaculture crowd. Well, I shouldn't use the word mature. That can mean so many different things. People people that have been burned by some of the um, flavors of permaculture they tried on earlier. And and now they're, they've, they've gotten past that and they're ready for it. But Okay, I I've got uh, I I have bitched and moaned about everything I could think of here. I have laid out some designs. I have said some things. I've looked at some things. Um, I've I don't know what's left. I think we've covered it all. Is there anything left? I think that's most of it. We were mostly looking at the pond and how we were designed and where we were to place it and whether the soil types were to support it. And then we were looking at a few things with the gardens and stuff. But like I said, we were planning on putting the gardens on either side of the driveway so that they're right there. Yeah, Get more zone car. one. And there's my garden. And, you know, that way we're doing stuff right there around where the cars are parked and where the house is at. Do your earthworks first. At the same time, I mean, this is where a permaculture design comes in. If you do a permaculture design course, you're going to scratch out where you're going to do it. And you're going to make a drawing. So make your drawing and then crumple it up and throw away, throw it away. And I'm not kidding. 
And then what you're going to do is you need to build your pond. Do your earthworks. Or build that first pond. And when the first pond is done, and you're going to have changed the shape of it seven times as you're building it for reasons. Mm-hmm. And also, be careful of those power lines above yeah. Yeah, Well, I think what we'll do site. is we'll, we'll set the pond toward, towards the road more yeah. so that the power lines are running along the edge. Luckily enough, those low-hanging yeah. ones are actually fiber-optic data lines. <laughs> yeah, roll those dice, buddy. Yeah. Uh, um, but the thing is, where I'm getting with this is, is that as you're building that first pond, there's going to be things you're going to learn about your ability to build a pond, and there's going to be things that you're going to learn about your property, especially what's under the ground. And you're gonna you're gonna change your mind about that pond a bunch of different ways as you're building it. Rather than sitting on a piece of paper which does not have underground adventures and then marrying the piece of paper, what I'm suggesting is build that first pond and then when that first pond is done being built then decide where your next pond is going to be. Get out and do it, and then reevaluate when you're done, and don't do any single part of the design all at once. Do each individual part and work through each one. It's just the same thing that we did. I, I talked to Tracy, and I told her, I go, we want to raise pigs or we want to do this. I go, we need to go get pigs now. And she's like, but that's five, ten years off. I go, it doesn't matter. We need to get pigs now so we can make all of our screw-ups here so that when we get where we're going, we don't make as many screw-ups. The point was we got the pigs so that we could learn because when you have a pig and it's farrowing, yeah. it doesn't matter what you read in a book. That thing is having babies right now, and that yeah. book does not matter at that point. Right. And whatever you learned is there, but... Until you're there with the animal having babies, you don't really realize what you would want to have or how you'd want it until you got to that point. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking that there's a design science, which is going to be that piece of paper. Yep. And the piece of paper is designed for, it is representing what is in your brain at one moment in time. And, um, and, and it's filling a five-minute hole and you're trying to convey what's in your head to somebody else's head. But don't marry that piece of paper. Allow it to flex and change as as things change when you're digging the pond because you may find a gigantic rock. Have it, what exactly. do you do with that? Exactly. Exactly. You might find a gigantic rock. But it's like trying to make a piece of furniture out of a log. Only you start digging into the log, and it's got adventures on the inside, and so your chair design changes. Or like that Whitney black powder pistol that was left in the crotch of the tree, and you're cutting it with your saw, and you hit it, and it breaks your saw. So, like, this porch we're sitting on is made out of dimensional lumber and plywood. And, uh, um, I look, you can even see some of the nails sticking through. <laughs> but the key is uh, dimensional lumber. I mean, that log was forced into a certain shape so that you could build something that followed a piece of paper. And, um, I mean, so this is this porch is an example of... Because, like, look at that black locust tree right there. 
that that tree is not going to lend itself well to this porch design. <laughs> that uh, that catalpa over there has got some big old wood on it there, and it's like, but it's not going to lend itself well to this porch design. But you could make a more amazing porch, a more beautiful porch, if you were to use that wood working with the shapes that you're given. Rather than trying to make everything fit into a square cookie cutter. Exactly. And so I just kind of feel like most people who go down the permaculture design road, they marry that piece of paper. Like, this is my plan for the next 20 years, and I shall not deviate from this. And I think that, that you know once they've conveyed what's in their head to somebody else's head, they need to wad it up and throw it away, maybe even set it on fire just to be sure that they don't unwad it up. And then go out there and make that first pawn. And then you can have a new design after you've made that first pond. And so, uh, and then it's like you might choose to do all kinds of different things. Who knows what's going to happen? You might, in fact, you might be halfway through building your pig waller when suddenly somebody makes a phone call and you're having conversations with people about this. You don't want to have a. So then you're thinking, like, I should have built that berm that Paul told me to build. <laughs> Suddenly, there's a, there's a, that berm is like the back end of that pond. I mean, that pig waller. <laughs> yeah, there'll definitely be some prep work before we go into any of it, and we still got to look at, measure it out. And what I like to do is go out there with a garden hose and wrap the garden hose around what I plan to do. Ah, so go. before I even put it to paper, what am I going to do? I'm going to go stand out there for two days looking at it and running a garden hose and see what's going to work there. And then on top of it, it'll still change. Five years from now, I'll change it again. Because I'll find something that doesn't work or I'll find some other new idea I want to go try. And it's always about trying something new. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about permaculture design, homesteading, and all the rest of permaculture all the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts. 